0: Because at the end of the day, social conscious is one thing, but if there's a disconnect between that social conscious mission and how well you've put together your visual identity, people start questioning whether you really are socially conscious and whether you have the ability to do anything credible in that space. So yes, social conscious is a huge part of our future, but it doesn't remove the need to have a strong visual brand.
1: You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. The reason why I find marketing so fascinating as an area of coverage, as an area of analysis, is frankly, that it can be so powerful. And I'm not just talking about like tech and tools, that's all great, but I'm talking about the core fundamentals of marketing getting deeper into the psychology of our consumers and creating campaigns and experiences and brand stories that really resonate with them, right? That pull all the levers, really address some of the innate behaviors that we as humans have. It's a huge area of interest for me personally. So I wanted to bring in an expert, someone who has knowledge, not just creating great brand experiences, but also understands all of those psychological components as well. So I brought in Ross Kimbarovsky, and he's the founder and CEO of Crowdspring. We talked about the mission behind Crowdspring and how visual branding and naming really influences and intersects with other principles of marketing and branding. So if this is in your wheelhouse or if you're a brand executive and you're looking for ways to assess and reinvent your business, especially in these times, Ross has some great perspectives on the psychological drivers, the brain science that can really give you some great ideas. Ross, thanks so much for taking the time out. Good to have you.
0: Happy to be here with you, Alicia.
1: So before we dig into the heart of our conversation today, and we do have a lot to talk about, let's start with the basics. Share a little bit about you and the work you do with Crowdspring.
0: Sure. So Crowdspring helps entrepreneurs, businesses, agencies, and nonprofits with logo design, graphic design, web design, and product design and also business naming for every stage of their growing business. We've been at it for 12 years. We believe that great design and naming doesn't have to cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. Our projects starts from a few hundred dollars. We have a community of over 220,000 creatives working with businesses, entrepreneurs, and agencies. I started my life in 95, my career as an attorney in practice for 13 years, and then ran into a problem as a lot of entrepreneurs do. We were trying to redesign my law firm site, and that led me to start looking for a better way to help businesses buy design and naming services.
1: Oh, that's great. So I do want to dig a little bit deeper into the mission behind Crowdspring and why you thought a company like this was necessary. So you just noted your own experiences, the problems that you were facing. Was it largely because you were just trying to democratize the branding and design work that is so critical to a great business? Or what were you trying to address for other entrepreneurs and budding businesses like yourselves, I guess, that led to the founding?
0: So initially, when I was frustrated trying to solve my own problem, we were a business. We needed to create a new website design. And we did what many businesses do. We hired a small agency that was at the time working with law firms, so at the top agency in the business. And so we went through a typical request for proposals process, as a lot of businesses will do. We looked at, at the proposals. We interviewed companies. And we were very frustrated with that process. And so I wondered, is there a better way to help businesses buy design services? So we're talking about retail businesses here. And and ultimately, when you walk into a retail shop and you're looking for a jacket, you look at different kinds of jackets, you try them on, you pick the one you like. That's not the way we generally buy services. We don't get to try on those services. We have to hire somebody, then wait for them to perform a service. And then we decide whether we like it or not. We thought that was not a particularly good business model when it came to design and naming. So we realized that there were two problems, one for businesses like ours, because we really had a hard time buying affordable, high quality design services, and the second for all of the people in the world who were outstanding designers, who may not be working for agencies, but who were very talented and could work for clients as long as they could find them. And and so our goal was to try to democratize the opportunities for those people, whether in their North Dakota, New York, Malaysia, or in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so that's what ultimately became CrowdSpring because the Big difference on Crowdspring is rather than setting your price and saying, I need this particular design and then seeing bids and proposals, this is how much I'll charge, you actually pick from real design. So if you're looking for a logo for a new business, you get 50 to 100 different logos for your business, uniquely designed by designers around the world. And you set your price as low as $299, including all fees. So it turned that model upside down for businesses and it created an opportunity for millions of designers around the world to compete in a model where it didn't matter whether they went to school to a big design school, whether they ultimately had 20 years of experience or 15 years of experience.
1: Fascinating. I love that there's a bit of a social or community driven element Almost like the gig economy for design, right? You're kind of bringing a collective group of passionate people together, giving them opportunity, giving them the power to build relationships and bridge connections with people in need of services. And I think this whole business model, this concept really speaks to the importance of creative, of branding in in business marketing in and of itself. But I'm curious about your thoughts on that, your take on that, especially in in these times, right, when there are so many options. You talked about how, like, when you go to a store, you can try on a jacket and kind of experience the product yourself. But, I mean, what role is creative kind of playing in the brand marketing and discovery process right now, do you think? It's
0: one of the most important roles in what constitutes a strong brand. So if if any of your listeners think about brands that we admire. So I like Apple, I like Tesla. There are two things that happen when you see somebody's logo or or see the name of a business. The first thing is there's an emotional, there's a chemical reaction in your brain, which ultimately creates a reaction to the brand. It's either positive or negative. So if you see a brand that you like, whenever you see their logo, there's a chemical reaction that creates a positive or negative response. And the second is an expectation. You have an expectation that whenever you see a product from that brand or a service from that brand that it will be of a certain quality. So I've used Apple products for a long time. I used to be a big PC person. I built hundreds of computers until I switched to Apple right around the time I started CrowdSpring. And for me, there's a lot of predictability about Apple products. Yes, they're expensive, but they're also really well built and the software is outstanding. And so Apple is one of the most powerful brands in the world, a big part of their value is in the brand, is in the brand equity they've built with their name. And that's true for most companies. So when we take it down to a smaller business level or retail business level, even big retailers, their brand identity, which is everything visual about their brand. So it's their name, their logo, their website, the way the stores are laid out, the brand colors, is one of the best ways that they could differentiate in the marketplace today. And a business that is unable to create a strong brand identity today gets lost very quickly because the competition is fierce, it's global, and there are obviously external factors like pandemics and economic swings that make it even more difficult.
1: Yeah, some great points there. So I do want to unpack some of those. Of course, you said Apple is a great example. I agree around a brand that had established this vision, this identity around the company, and that has become the way that so many consumers, whether they're passionate fans and and users or not, they make that association with the Apple brand, right? And a lot of that has to do with their design, their user experience, the logo. I mean, if you walk past the store, I mean, probably not so much now, but when you would walk past the Apple store, you see the open spaces, the glass, the modern design. You're like, oh, that's Apple. Like I know Apple. So I guess my question for you is looking at this through the lens of other retail brands, I mean, what other factors drive branding and marketing fundamentals or that core of what the brand represents? So you talked about a few things, a lot of design driven things, but I'm hearing more and more about tone of voice, you know, how that's portrayed in like marketing and in signage, for instance, like, well, how deep does this go?
0: Well, so let's unpack it kind of from the top. Obviously, design is extremely important because design sets the tone for how you communicate. Colors, for example, have meanings. The colors that businesses choose to reflect their brands have psychological impact. So there's no wonder that banks and financial institutions will typically pick the color blue because the color blue is associated with trust and comfort. It's the same reason why a lot of banks and financial institutions have columns in their logos because columns from the Greek and Roman times are still standing around the world and they've persevered through crises and, and centuries. But fundamentally, when it comes down to it, everything is translated into psychology. So the way that people buy and the way that smart companies, including retailers, are able to influence those decisions are driven by psychology. And that has a variety of principles that are deeply grounded. There's a psychology of marketing. There's a psychology of branding. And those principles are starting to shift. And I'll give you one example. I was actually reading Retail Touch Points yesterday. There was an article about an interesting report from Ernst & Young on how consumer segments are shifting in response to what's going on in the world. And Ernst & Young identified five different types of consumer segments that are likely to emerge as the pandemic starts abating. And there's a health first, so people that prioritize health, affordability first, so those that are not so much brand loyal but want to make sure that it's affordable. Society first, so socially conscious people. Planet first, so concerned about the environment. And experience first. Consumers focus on how they feel about the purchases. But if you abstract that and think about it, all of this translates to how people feel and the impact of these purchasing decisions on them. And so fundamentally, when we sell products, when we offer product for sale in a store or online, The important thing is to try to figure out how these products make people feel and what can we do to help them understand and differentiate. And what can we do also to prompt those purchasing decisions? Because at the end of the day, businesses make money if people buy, not just if they browse. Yeah, those are
1: some really fantastic points. And I think as as a content person, I'm always thinking about, you know, what's the best way to portray this concept? How can we break this down so it's as easy and, and receptive for the audience as possible? I think it really speaks to, like you said, the psychology of marketing. So what are the best ways to connect and resonate with your audience? But also just kind of getting a little bit deeper, right, into the mindset, why people behave the way they do. And I think it ties to what we're hearing a lot in retail right now, that you can't just be driven by demographics, right? Like age, gender, location, even around tech usage, right? We've heard time and time again, it isn't just about Gen Z uses social media more. Like it does rely heavily upon the unique behaviors and mindsets of individual. There's deeper context there. So Let's dig a little bit deeper into those, those principles of human behavior, like why people act the way they do, what drives people to take action, or, or in this case, ultimately make the purchase, right? Because I think for all the marketing folks out there, I want to help highlight the key indicators or key behaviors that maybe they can leverage as they think through their marketing strategies, especially in these times, right? I mean, it's kind of like a new playing field in a way.
0: Sure. And let me start maybe with one of the most well-known principles to psychologists, reciprocity people feel an obligation to do something for you when you've done something for them. And this is known as the principle of reciprocity. And it's a very powerful psychological principle. And let me give you an example. It's not something that that we've seen recently, but Costco has historically been famous for offering free samples of their products as people walk around and shop through their stores. And the reason Costco does that is when you give a sample, two things can happen. First of all, somebody, could really like the product and want to buy the product. And in most cases, the way our brains are wired, when somebody gives us food they prepared, we tend to prefer that food much more than when we prepared the food ourselves. That's just very basic psychology. So Costco gamifies that. And then the second reason is when you walk through a Costco as you're shopping and you've essentially had lunch and dinner, you feel a little guilty that you haven't bought any of those products. And so there are a high number of people that'll buy something. Now, You don't have to be a Costco to leverage that. So there are a lot of small retail stores that do this exceptionally well. So if you're a chocolate confectionery, for example, and you make artisan chocolate bars, cut up some of the chocolate and offer it as free samples in your store so people could taste them because it has the same exact effect. I know as a customer, I've always felt that when I walk into a place and I taste something and it's really good. And when I taste two or three things, I feel guilty that I didn't buy something. So I end up buying one. And and (laughs) then I think, well, that's pretty good. I want to buy some more. And so I end up walking out buying three more bars of chocolate that I intended to buy when I walked in. So reciprocity could be a very powerful principle that helps you do something for a prospect or a customer and they will ultimately then end up buying from you.
1: Okay, got it. Yeah, I think reciprocity is a really powerful one. Definitely aligns really nicely with the brand promise of the Costco experience. I know some people are like, oh, it's Sunday, time to go to Costco, and that's when they get all their samples in. It's like a it's part of that full on experience. But can you share any examples of how these different behaviors may be more valuable for different product categories? Like what other behaviors exist that marketers can tap into? Of course, reciprocity being one of the more well-known ones, like what else may be valuable for, say, like a luxury retailer or something like that?
0: So in in luxury retail, the same principles apply, but obviously you're going to treat these things a little differently. If you're a a high-end jewelry store, you're not about to start giving out free diamonds and hoping that people buy more free diamonds. But ultimately, there are things that you can do. So for example, if you are a high-end jewelry store and you're looking to create leads and build relationships with clients, one thing you can do is you can offer free adjustments. People lose weight. They gain weight. Things happen. Free cleaning for jewelry, as an example, that get people into your store, have a conversation with them, because ultimately there's a lot of serendipity to purchasing decisions. And so when you're talking to a person, it may be that their cousin is getting married and looking for a ring or somebody else they know is looking for a wedding present. And so you can use those kinds of opportunities. And it doesn't even have to be in a retail setting. So as an example in marketing, whether you're a retail business or an online business, if part of what you do is create content and content marketing is helping you find leads and find customers, It is a natural reaction for people who content market to try to want to share all of their content over and over because we feel like the more we share, the more people will listen. The problem is that if all we're doing is sharing our own content, people stop listening because they don't really care about our own content. What they want to see is a variety of content. And if we want to ask people to share our content, we need to share theirs. So reciprocity, do something for somebody before they do something for you share other people's content over a period of time before you ask them to share yours and when they've seen that you're doing that they will gladly share your content too and i'll give you a second example that relates to reciprocity even though every business owner wants to sell every product or service as quickly as possible that rarely happens and the more expensive the product the less likely that'll happen so one dollar products can sell quickly $5,000 products typically don't sell in an instant. So work on nurturing a relationship, help educate, which is part of reciprocity, do something for somebody before they buy something for you. So if they're buying a couch, educate them about couch construction, different qualities of leather, the benefits of leather versus non-leather materials, how pets react to those kinds of products, and ask for a sale at some point later. It feels counterintuitive, but studies show that people are more likely to buy when they're comfortable, not when you push them in the beginning. It's the reason why most people hate car salesmen, because that's a fast pressure, uncomfortable situation. It's why there have been many businesses set up that have got rid of negotiation and have been very successful.
1: Yeah, I think there's some really great examples. I think they reaffirm the importance of relationships, of community, and even something that's highly transactional. And I think there is a lot of nuance as well. So to your point around car salesmen, right? There are certain purchases that have longer buying cycles. Folks may need a bit more time to weigh their options, even investigate what they want or need from a particular product or business. So giving them more lead time, like that funnel looks a little bit different, right? So giving them opportunities to validate their decisions, help guide them through the process from a content marketing perspective, that is incredibly powerful. And I guess my follow-up question for you Do you think this role and importance of reciprocity is only going to become more important in the future? I mean, obviously, we're in this time now as an industry where we're hearing a lot of consumers changing brands as a result of access, availability, convenience. So loyalty has always been hard in retail, but I feel like now especially it's kind of shaking up. But I feel like there's also a greater emphasis on on that relationship point. So, I mean, has COVID impacted the fundamentals of marketing at all? And what really allows brands to resonate with consumers in that way? Or maybe you're seeing something completely different. I'd love your take on what you're seeing.
0: I think that's a fair question. And ultimately, reciprocity, Will never go away because psychologically, this is how people work. And if you think about, so I mentioned 10 minutes ago reading the Ernst Young report on retail touch points in a, an article yesterday and, and the five categories of consumers. All of those consumers ultimately are looking for things, are looking to buy products where the brands took some action. So health first are looking for brands that decided to prioritize healthy product ingredients in a product. Society first, they're looking for brands that focus on society and they're looking to solve societal ills. Planet first, environmentally friendly products with packaging that's biodegradable or recyclable. Experience first, people that create an overall good experience are still at the end of the day, brands that took the time to figure out a good experience. It's why people have videos opening up Apple products. They're opening boxes, but that experience is so interesting because the packaging is so interesting that people create fascinating study in in how the market reacts to brands that take that time. So, So I think reciprocity will continue to dominate and even more so brands that adapt to societal changes to what's happening in our culture. And we could talk about it in a moment, make those conscious choices are becoming more popular and becoming more able to persuade consumers. There's one good example that sort of places the context of pandemics against some of these psychological principles. It's another principle of psychology called scarcity. And scarcity marketing is a technique based on the principle that people want what is difficult to get. And we don't have to go very far to see the prime example of that. Back in February and March, when the pandemic started rearing its ugly head in the United States, everybody was trying to buy toilet paper, Now, the amount of toilet paper that was bought was absolutely insane. There was no possible way that people could use that toilet paper. In fact, many were trying to return it to these stores later. But the reason everybody was buying toilet paper was because everybody was buying toilet paper. People felt there was not enough toilet paper. And in times of panic, when things become scarce, it becomes really interesting because people want to buy it. And we've seen this in the consumer product segment. We've seen it in retail shops. So we can go back decades. And every time there's a hot toy of the year at the end of the the year during the holiday season, whether it's a Furby or or a Cabbage Patch Kid, or a hot electronic game today, there's a scarcity built around them, and people want it. And so companies that are smart will create that scarcity. If you walk into a Home Depot, a Lowe's right now, you're not going to see a ton of cleaning products, for example part of that is because people are constantly buying them. Part of that, I suspect in some cases, is these companies creating a demand for these products without putting everything they have out on the shelves.
1: Yeah. Some great points there, Ross. And, and you did briefly bring up the role of values, mission, and marketing. And we're seeing that a lot more. So I did want to ask you about that because I feel like In these times specifically, we're seeing a lot more urgency for brands to have some sort of cause or connection to a deeper cause, whether that's social responsibility, charitable giving, environmental issues. And it does depend on the brand, right? Like we saw companies like Tom's really be successful with their buy one, give one type model, Warby Parker as well. But I want your take on the future of this particular trend, right? Because on one hand... Consumers are being more cognizant of their purchasing decisions. They wanted to try and connect with brands that align with their values, their lifestyles. But then on the other hand, they're also very cognizant of how this connection is being communicated and whether it's just marketing for marketing's sake and companies are trying to keep up or whether it's deeply rooted in their DNA? I know this could probably be a conversation in and of itself for another time, but I mean, what's your take on where this particular trend is going? Do you think this will kind of be a baseline for effective consumer marketing going forward as a part of that that trust building and that relationship building with consumers?
0: I do think that the social consciousness, people favoring brands and companies that do and promote social good has been with us for a number of years and will continue to grow in strength, in large part driven by a few factors. First of all, millennials and Gen Z consumers are more in tune with, just based on studies and based on what we see happening in society today, they're more in tune with what's going on in the world. They're more opinionated about those things. They're more likely to go out and demonstrate and stand up for what they believe. They are less motivated by, Things, they're more motivated by experiences. And as a result, they're not buying houses, they're not buying cars, they don't own nearly the amount of stock that other generations did at that age when those generations were that age. But they are much more socially conscious. And you can see that in a few things. One example, when surveyed, more than 90% of consumers say that they're more likely to buy from an authentic brand than from a dishonest brand. And so that goes directly to your question of can a company pretend to be social conscious and sort of try to wing it, or do they really need to be socially conscious and and be obvious about it? And and the short answer, it's really hard to wing it with these consumers. The brands that are predominantly celebrated for their social good and the things they do are revered throughout all of these crises. And then the second statistic that's, that's a really significant piece of this puzzle is that emotion is really important. So 90% of all purchasing decisions are made subconsciously we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what we're going to buy we ultimately do we ultimately make a decision i'm going to buy this item over that item but 90% of that work is done by our brain subconsciously when we're not thinking about it and that means that the factors that we have to process to make these purchasing decisions are driven by many other things so social good is one important piece of it because people are concerned about the environment people are concerned about what's going on in this country and other countries people are concerned about what we're doing with energy. People are concerned about a lot of different issues that are important to them, and brands are latching on. So brands like Patagonia, for example, Ben & Jerry's, who've been socially conscious for decades, have done a phenomenal job building strong brands that are connected to socially conscious activities, and and they have opinions. But but the one thing I wanted to emphasize, and this is the, the really important part, is that you can't just tack on to a socially conscious movement, and ignore the other key principles of building a strong brand. In other words, it's fine and probably necessary for brands to be opinionated and to take a position on things. But physical attractiveness still is important. How your brand looks visually. Is your website a professionally done website? Is your logo nice and clean and does it represent some confidence? The marketing materials that you give people, your business card, the letter that you send, the brochure that you send, the signage on your store, are they well done? Because at the end of the day, Social consciousness is one thing, but if there's a disconnect between that social conscious mission and how well you've put together your visual identity, people start questioning whether you really are socially conscious and whether you have the ability to do anything credible in that space. So yes, social consciousness is a huge part of our future, but it doesn't remove the need to have a strong visual brand.
1: Yeah, but it's definitely clear that all of these layers play together, right? They intersect. And I think that's the, really the key takeaway for me and also how all of these different psychological factors, right, and emotional factors play into the decision-making process. So we, in turn, need to leverage that in all facets of our brand experience, which I think is really, really powerful and really gives our listeners a lot of me to kind of consider or think through their brand, because now, frankly, I think is a good time to do it. We're hearing so much about the term reinvention or reimagining, especially as We're seeing a lot of brands struggle, go through bankrupt, closing stores. There's a lot going on. So now is kind of an opportune time for teams to pause, kind of take a step back, I think, and reassess what goes into their brand. How are we presenting this brand to the general public? And I feel like this is something we can go on and on about, Ross. But sadly, we're kind of at the top of our time together But to close things up, I mean, do you have have any closing thoughts, recommendations for all of the brand and marketing folks that are listening right now that may be in the middle of this? reassessment and want to drive some positive change for their brands right now? Sure.
0: There are kind of two approaches and they both sync up into one. One thing we do periodically, we do this at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, is we go offsite with my senior team and we ask a simple question. If we were to create a business to compete with CrowdSpring, so we're a global marketplace, we help businesses with logo design, web design, everything else, but we have lots of competitors. And if we were to create a new competitor, what would we do differently? What choices would we no longer make? And that's a good way for any business, whether you're running a retail business or an online business, to evaluate what are they doing right and what are they doing wrong. The other piece of it, which again converges, is something called a SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T. And it stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's a strategic planning framework. It sounds complicated, but it's not. It's a very simple framework. And you you can look it up, do a Google search. We've got a lot of good articles on SWOT analysis on the CrowdSpring blog. But ultimately, it is a way to measure the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats in your business so you can reassess where you need to invest some time to fix. Lots of companies, even the most successful, Walmart, is a good example. Several decades ago, not a great reputation. They were thought of putting a lot of small businesses, retail businesses out of business in rural areas. And they've really worked hard to rebuild that reputation. Doesn't mean it's pristine, but it means that even if you're a huge brand, you can do this. And this is much easier to do for smaller companies. So focus on your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats and find a way to use this time, which is a very uneven time to rebrand, to create a stronger brand and a stronger business, because ultimately your competitors are doing that.
1: Well, that's great, Ross. Thank you again so much for taking the time out and for unpacking all of the layers that not just go into great marketing, but go into a great overall brand. I think, you know, this is a fascinating time for marketers and brand executives. It's a great opportunity for us all to take a closer look at our consumers who are trying to reach and really tap into all of the components that we talked about today. So thank you again so much for the fantastic conversation. And of course, thanks everyone out there for listening. As always, if you have any feedback on this episode or have an idea for a topic or a person that we should be chatting with, don't hesitate to drop us a line on Twitter. You can reach us at Touchpoints, or you can connect with me directly at Alicia underscore alicia__fiospo. Thanks everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.